the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering today's program. Today we'll hear from Cy Gart. His book is titled The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. And we'll uh, reflect on the life and legacy of Ray Bakke, who has died at 83. That's all coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, of course, tonight is the president's first State of the Union address. He'll deliver that address um, uh, today at about 6 o'clock Pacific time with some pretty tumultuous events at home and abroad, the Russian military invasion of Ukraine and much more. Well, President Biden will address a nation weary of the pandemic while feeling gouged at the grocery store and the gas pump. The president's expected to elaborate on his plans to lower costs for American families while continuing economic recovery. It's expected to include making more things domestically, reducing the cost of everyday expenses by promoting fair competition and eliminating barriers to good uh, paying jobs. The president will also likely focus on the ocean's uh, shipping industry, which oversees everything from housewares bought online to agricultural products that American farmers and um, markets overseas. Well, the president is expected to speak on the ocean shipping industry being dominated by just a small number of giant foreign owned companies that control more than three-fourths of global container ship capacity and 95% of the east-west trade lines. The president will also use the address to launch a major overhaul of nursing home quality, including minimum staffing levels and steps to beef up inspections while continuing to keep COVID-19 at bay. Well, the plan calls for moving nursing homes toward private rooms for their residents, directing federal regulators to explore how to phase out living arrangements that house three or more residents in the same room, which is apparently more typical than not. Overshadowing the president's speech, of course, will be the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has in the past week, six days to be more precise, commanded the world's full attention. Well, in a rare bout of bipartisanship, lawmakers have banded together to hold the U.S. and its allies together in the defense of a Western-oriented democracy. We're all together at this point, and we need to be together about what should be done. That's a quote from Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds will give the Republican Party's rebuttal to the president's speech. Republican governors across America are leading the charge in defending liberty and security, unmatched economic prosperity in our states, Reynolds said in a statement in anticipation of her Uh, rebuttal. The Biden administration is governing from the far left, ignoring the problems of working class Americans while pushing an agenda that stifles free speech, free thought and economic freedom. The American people have had enough, but there is an alternative. And that's what I look forward to on Tuesday evening. End quote. Again, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds will be offering the rebuttal. Republicans held a press conference on Monday afternoon to discuss what they hope to hear from the president's State of the Union address, his first, with the top issues being the economy, gas prices, the border, COVID protocols, and then Ukraine. Democrats, meanwhile, will have not one, but 
two responses to the president's address. Representative uh, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan uh, was already poised to deliver one response. And on Monday, it was announced that Representative Colin uh, Allred of Texas will deliver the Congressional Black Caucus's response. So there will be three responses to the president's uh, speech, one from Republicans, two from Democrats. Unprecedented. Well, Tuesday's gathering in the House chamber will be the first time since the pandemic outbreak in 2020 and last year's attack on the Capitol that all members of the House and Senate are being invited to gather for what typically has been an annual event. Masks will no longer be required, though COVID tests and social distancing measures will still be required. Now, some were speculating, and it came up in the uh, press secretary's uh, press conference earlier today. Um, some are suggesting this was a part of the theater uh, so that the president could declare victory over COVID. We'll see if that happens or not. Well, the president's address also comes as a trucker convoy inspired by COVID vaccine mandates in Ottawa plan to uh, protest against pandemic restrictions. They're making their way to Washington. While there are no uh, credible threats related to the speech, law enforcement officials are ramping up security after the events of 2021, when a violent mob stormed the U.S. Capitol, briefly disrupting the certification of the presidential victory in 2020. Biden, uh, Biden's address is scheduled for 6 o'clock p.m. Pacific time and will be carried on all of the uh, usual news networks. Well, with the president set to deliver his first State of the Union address tonight, it's a good time to ask, how has the president done as president and what is the actual State of the Union? According to the American people, things aren't going great. A CNN poll in early February asked Americans what they thought of the president's presidency and what he's done right since entering office in January of last year. The top answers by a wide margin, according to that poll, hardly likely to be skewed against Biden and Democrats, was um, nothing at all. Over half of those surveyed couldn't come up with a single success during Biden's first year of office. I'm hard-pressed to think of a single thing that he has done that benefits the country, one respondent wrote, according to CNN. When Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said uh, in his speech at last week's Conservative Political Action Committee, uh, clearly a partisan event, that Biden was off to the worst start of any presidency since the 19th century, he clearly was echoing the opinion of some Americans, perhaps many, if not most. Biden campaigned on a message of uniting the country, but the country seems more divided and fractured since he took office, except perhaps on appraisals of his job performance. Well, the president is now hitting record low approval ratings for a president at this point in his term. Americans are dubious about the, uh, their leadership for a reason, since more than a few national challenges and outright catastrophes may be tied directly to the failures of the administration. Some of those uh, challenges that the president is facing, we'll talk about when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, a reminder in the second hour, the works of his hands. We'll hear from Cy Gart on his, um, well, his move from being a scientist and atheist to a scientist and believer. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about some of the challenges the president uh, will most likely address border security and the border crisis. As you know, the security on the southern border has been an ongoing disaster, though only barely given coverage by the legacy media. The, the messy Afghanistan withdrawal, the president's withdrawal from the country was certainly one of the low points of his presidency, one of the lowest points of American foreign policy since the fall of Saigon at the end of the Vietnam War. 
Also, the return to energy dependence with the Afghanistan mess. It wasn't the only foreign policy debacle. Uh, Russian uh, since um, Russia launched a major invasion of Ukraine in the days before the president's State of the Union speech. Unbelievably, former Secretary of State John Kerry, uh, Biden's climate czar, said the situation in Ukraine is worrying because Russia will be distracted from staying on track to fight climate change. It's an illustration of just how uh, misguided uh, some are with regard to the life and death issue that's unfolding there. And although rather the ultimate blame for the invasion remains with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, strengthening Russia's hand with generally misguided energy policies is certainly uh, something to consider. The authoritarian COVID-19 mandates. Remember when the president said that he would shut down the COVID-19 virus and not the economy? Well, most Americans now believe that COVID-19 is here to stay no matter what we do. This after the president reached beyond the powers of his office to force Americans to get vaccinated, tell states to enforce the most uh, stringent mask mandates and depriving some of their livelihood. The president tried to force private employers and other organizations with over 100 or more employees to enforce a vaccine mandate, despite saying that he didn't think it was exactly constitutional. There's also the uh, crime surge in American cities. It's have uh, cities are experiencing an explosion of violent crime since the summer of 2020. It's a trend that shows no sign of abating. In December, ABC News reported that a dozen U.S. cities had set homicide records for 2021. Then there's rising inflation. You might recall back in July, the president said inflation would be a temporary problem that his administration had a handle on. I want to be clear, he said at the time, my administration understands that um, uh, were we ever to experience unchecked inflation in the long term, that would pose a real challenge for our economy. He went on to say, while we're confident that isn't what we're seeing today, we're going to remain vigilant, vigilant rather about any response that is needed, end quote. Well, now we're well into the new year, and if anything, inflation is getting worse. For most Americans, inflation has become almost impossible to ignore. Even, uh, even some leading Democrats have acknowledged that inflation is getting out of control. In December, inflation hit 7%. That's the highest it's been since 1982, but this isn't the same situation in the 1980s. We were on the other side of the wave, as the Wall Street Journal has noted, In 82, inflation had fallen from its peak of 14.8% in 1980, the last year of Jimmy Carter's one-term presidency. And then there is the ongoing war on parents, violent crimes spinning out of control, but the Justice Department clearly didn't uh, see that as the real threat to the country. No, the real threat were parents who disagreed with what's happening in their local schools. Parents around the country, even in the far-left San Francisco, have been organizing in response to the misguided and often egregious policies of many K-12 schools. And from the inclusion of um, some theories uh, with radical ideas and classroom curriculum to over-the-top COVID-19 restrictions that force students to stay home for over a year or wear masks all day long, parents were fed up. The result has been old-fashioned self-government in action. Many parents have simply pulled their children out of school or those who have remained have demanded that their voices be heard. Of course, they were labeled terrorists for doing so.
Well, President Biden will uh, talk during the State of the Union today about fighting a nationwide surge in violent crime and will again speak against defunding the police. Now, that stands against the left flank of his party. The president is expected to call on Congress to provide more funding to law enforcement, a senior administration official says, by spending on crime prevention and more community police officers to walk the streets, get to know neighbors and restore trust and safety. President Biden is set to push Congress to approve his budget request of $200 million for community violence interventions, $300 million uh, to more than double the size of the Justice Department's COPS Community Policing Hiring Grant Program. He'll make clear that the answer is not to defund the police. It is to put more police with better training and more accountability out to take back our streets and make our neighborhoods safer. Well, the official also said that The president's Tuesday night speech will use his address to reiterate his call for Congress to pass common sense gun violence legislation that will save lives. Violent crime has spiked across the nation after some cities reduced funding for their police departments in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests against the murder of George Floyd in 2020 in Minneapolis. The surge has continued into 2022. I won't go into the statistics, but uh, the president will also talk about what he's done during his first year in office to fight crime. The senior administration official said, including executing his five part comprehensive strategy to make communities across the country safer and to reduce gun crime. Well, last month, the president, the administration rolled out a strategy to stop the flow of guns, bolster law enforcement and increase funding for community uh, policing. As part of the strategy, the Justice Department announced a new directive to every U.S. attorney's office nationwide to increase resources dedicated to uh, district-specific violent crime strategies. The Justice Department is also working to crack down on the Iron Pipeline, a reference to the illegal flow of guns sold in the South and transported up the East Coast and found at crime scenes in cities from Baltimore to New York City, all part of what's expected in the president's State of the Union address tonight, 6 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris was blasted by critics on Monday for claiming during a speech at the White House that American voters got what they asked for when they elected her and President Biden. Well, the vice president made the claim during a celebration for Black History Month when she took a moment to celebrate Biden's nomination of Judge Katanji Jackson to be the first black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. Now, she wasn't the first nominee. In fact, he vehemently opposed the first nominee under the Bush administration and uh, threatened to um, uh, not just to uh, veto, but to filibuster that nomination. So let's get your history right, first of all. Anyway, she said, I felt such pride and such hope this past Friday when President Joe Biden nominated Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Uh, Harris told those uh, gathered for the event, because, as we all know, elections matter. And when folks vote, they order what they want. And in this case, they got what they asked for. End quote. I went off script a little bit, she added, laughing as she does. Well, critics, not surprisingly, jumped to social media to blast the vice president with some listing what they uh, saw as the administration's numerous failures and others predicting a defeat for Democrats in the November midterm elections. The American people didn't ask for any of this record inflation, record border crisis, closed schools, a war on American energy, Afghanistan, a disaster, Russia invasion of Ukraine, wrote Senator Ted Cruz, obviously a partisan, while former White House press secretary and Arkansas gubernatorial candidate Sarah Sanders called the Biden administration a complete and total failure. Well, the president has a 37 percent approval rating in a recent ABC poll. 
People didn't ask for this. She is a terrible politician. Former Trump 2020 campaign communications director Tim Murtaugh wrote, while other critics predicted Harris's comments would be used as campaign fodder for Republican campaigns across the country. The vice president's comments came as Americans' approval of the administration's job performance reached its lowest point since taking office, with one recent poll showing Biden with a 37 percent approval rating. Well, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds is going to deliver the Republican response uh, tonight to the president's State of the Union address. Reynolds has promised to deliver an alternative to what she regards as Biden's absent leadership and far left agenda. But who is Governor Reynolds and why was she chosen for the rebuttal speech? Well, some of the reasons she's the 43rd governor of Iowa. Uh, She made history by becoming the first woman to hold that position. She was lieutenant governor in Iowa from 2011 to 2017. She assumed the top job in 2017 from her predecessor, who stepped down uh, to become U.S. ambassador to China in the Trump administration. She won her own gubernatorial election in 2018. She held elected positions for years before graduating college, and although she took classes throughout her adult life, she didn't graduate until the age of 57. So there's hope for, uh, for others. When she earned a bachelor's degree, in 2016 from Iowa State University. She garnered national attention for her COVID policies, which included being the first governor in the country to require schools to reopen for in-person learning. Reynolds has three daughters and 11 grandchildren, all of whom live in central Iowa. When House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy announced Reynolds would give the State of the Union rebuttal speech, her He praised her brave, bold and successful leadership and said Biden should take notes from her policy ideas in Iowa. She is a proponent of a a flat income tax, has worked to change Iowa's income tax rates from some of the highest in the nation to the fourth lowest. And Reynolds will be the second female Republican from Iowa to be uh, in the past uh, decade to deliver the GOP response to the State of the Union address following Iowa Senator Joni Ernst's speech Uh, responding to President Barack Obama's address in 2015. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up on our second hour, we'll talk with Cy Gart, The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. We'll also remember the life and legacy of uh, Ray Baki, who died uh, earlier this month, or last month, I should say, at 83. Well, in a 40-mile military convoy, satellite imagery provided by Maxar shows a large Russian military convoy heading toward the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. A church shooting left five dead, at least five people, including the suspected gunman following a shooting at a church in Sacramento, California. Uh, The gunman killed his three kids before turning the gun on himself. There was also a chaperone. This was supposed to be a supervised visit at around 5 o'clock p.m. at a um, a, a church uh, in Sacramento. Uh, Those killed were pronounced dead at the scene, and authorities believe the incident was domestic violence related. The fifth person who died was described as an adult. President Biden will give his first State of the Union address tonight, marking the most consequential speech of his lifetime. In a questionable TV buy, former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo rolled out a new political ad on Monday that suggested he is the victim of political attacks. A former business partner of Hunter Biden was sentenced to prison for his role in defrauding a Native American tribe. The Supreme Court of the United States um, explained President Biden will deliver his, I should say, State of the Union address 
uh, his first uh, Tuesday with some tumultuous events we've already discussed. Mike Pompeo says work should um, uh, have been done months ago to bolster Ukraine and to prevent conflict with Russia. But that, of course, has not been the case. Rick Perry points out that Europe is facing a transformational moment in history as it battles for its future. Paul Mangle predicts that during President Biden's uh, President Biden's first State of the Union address, he may choose to declare victory over COVID-19. They won't be wearing masks, by the way. Ken Walling reminds that when President Barack Obama nominated Katanji Brown Jackson to serve as a judge for the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia in 2012, she was introduced by an unlikely advocate before the Senate Judiciary Committee, Representative Paul Ryan, a Republican from Wisconsin, a relative through marriage. Uh, He said of Jackson, our politics may differ, but my praise for Katanji's intellect, for her character, for her integrity is... um, unequivocal. Uh, Ryan said she's an amazing person and I favorably recommend her consideration. Jackson was confirmed by a bipartisan vote on the floor of the U.S. Senate in 2013 and Senator Ryan would become the 54th Speaker of the House in 2015. In a somewhat twisted anthem, Dee Snyder, the lead singer of Twisted Sister, is okay with the Ukrainians using his 1984 hit record, We're Not Going to Take It. In a possible weather edge, snow is predicted in Ukraine this week, which may give Ukraine a slight advantage as they're waiting for help. Well, as the Kremlin-backed Russia Today Network, it's a network called Russia Today, is banished and dropped in Europe and Canada following the invasion of Ukraine, the American affiliate of RT continues to broadcast from Washington, D.C. European Commission uh, President Ursula von der Leyen announced on Sunday that RT was, um, as well as fellow global Russian out, uh, outlet Sputnik, uh, would be banned in the European Union, calling them the Kremlin's media machine and adding the EU was developing tools to ban their toxic and harmful disinformation. Major Canadian television providers also announced this past weekend that they would drop RT from their lineups. It's uh, leading to questions at home about what should be done, if anything, about the green logoed network whose motto is as a state backed news organ is question more. Again, the Kremlin backed Russia today still heard in the United States. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin is targeting civilians with banned cluster bombs in a panicked bid to reignite his stalled military onslaught. The Russian president had launched an indiscriminate bombing campaign on the eastern city of uh, Kharkiv just 24 hours after local residents had sent his troops packing from the streets. Weapons rained down on the most Russian-friendly city in Ukraine, which sits 25 miles from the border and is home to 1.5 million people in a bid to break it, uh, its will to resist. The hail of bombs, shells and rockets, which began falling at lunchtime, left at least 11 known dead, including three children, with homes and even a school reduced to rubble. From another story, more than 100 countries have banned their use and signed up to the Convention of Cluster Munitions. However, neither Russia nor Ukraine, which also possesses cluster munitions but hasn't used them apparently, has put their name to this agreement. According to the New York Times, additional satellite imagery collected today suggests that the Russian convoy moving toward Kiev is now stretched out for approximately 40 miles, more than twice as long as was reported earlier. Marco Rubio says Russia moving as, is moving as quickly to choke off supplies to Kiev by sealing off the western part of the city. Remember, all the material being sent to Ukraine has come across the border and from the western part of that country. 
A Russian soldier to his mother wrote, they told us they would welcome us, referring to the Ukrainians. That's what he expected. Many of these troops are conscripted. The Ukraine ambassador read from a screenshot of a Russian soldier killed on the battlefield. The exchange was with his mother, who had no idea he was sent into Ukraine. He told her, Mama, I'm in Ukraine. There is a real war raging here. I'm afraid we are bombing all the cities together, even even targeting civilians. We were told that we would be welcomed. And they are falling under our armored vehicles, throwing themselves under the wheels and not allowing us to pass. Mama, this is so hard. We learned later that he did not survive um, his time in Ukraine. CNN's Clarissa Ward visits with a grandmother in Ukraine who's making Molotov cocktails uh, when Clarissa translates, she includes some very colorful language, but this grandmother is determined to defend her homeland. Senate Democrats are pushing an extreme abortion bill. The bill would create a right to abortion in all 50 states through all nine months of pregnancy. It failed with Manchin as the only Democrat to reject it. From John McCormick, at the various points over the last 50 years when Democrats have controlled Congress, they've declined to put the WHPA, that's the initials for the bill, or its predecessor proposals up for a vote before the full Senate or House because the bill was seen as politically toxic and there were too many moderate abortion rights supporting uh, Democrats who found it too extreme. That's no longer the case. Guy Benson points out that Senate Democrats, with the exception of Manchin, just voted unanimously for a failed bill that would impose abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy as the national law. It's gruesome and radical stuff. The vulnerable 2022 incumbents supported it. From Alexandra DeSantis, there are two Democrats in the entire Congress opposing opposed rather to enshrining abortion on demand as a fundamental right and blocking states from enacting pro-life laws. American businesses are cracking down on Russia. Would be interesting to see how many do this if China invades Taiwan, but that's another question. Disney and Warner Brothers announced a pause in theatrical release in Russia. Guy Benson points out, echoing the thoughts of many, now do China. Netflix is refusing to add Russian state-run TV channels to its streaming service. Not just America, FIFA banned Russia from the World Cup qualifiers. A Russian government representative at a climate meeting apologized to Ukraine. Well, the story doesn't note any potential consequences for the unusual action, but from the story, during the final session of the two-week online meeting to approve an intergovernmental panel on climate change, uh, its latest blockbuster, Climate Report, the head of the Moscow delegation, Oleg Anizimov, uh, said in Russian, first of all, let me thank Ukraine and present an apology on behalf of all Russians who were not able to prevent this conflict. All of those who know what is happening fail to find any justification for this attack against Ukraine. That was a brazen statement, and again, it's not clear what potential consequences may follow. It's now worth less than a cent, referring to the Russian ruble. Uh, From the Wall Street Journal, trading in the uh, Russian currency is so thin, owing to sanctions and other risks, that it's impossible to know the true exchange rate. The central bank on Monday suspended stock trading and raised its policy interest rate to 20 percent from 9.5 percent, in part to woo savers back to the banks after reports of banks Uh, Bank runs over the weekend. Help is not at hand. New sanctions announced Monday by the U.S. Treasury prohibit most transactions with Russia's central bank and sovereign wealth fund in tandem with the similar measures imposed by other developed countries. This makes it all but uh, impossible for Moscow to trade much of its $631 billion foreign exchange reserves to shore up the ruble. 
And the Pfizer COVID vaccine is just 12 percent effective against Omicron in children. The Food and Drug Administration sought to fast-track Pfizer vaccine for kids age six months to four years old this month in response to the number of children hospital, hospitalized rather with COVID. However, the FDA and Pfizer decided to put those plans on hold after data on the first two doses didn't meet expectations. The FDA is now waiting to see clinical trial data on the third dose for youngest, uh, the youngest kids, which is expected in April. Katie Pavlich points out the vilification of parents who were like, yeah, we want more data first before giving this to our kids, if we ever do, is off the charts insane. Same applies to anyone, especially women, who wanted more data first. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in just a couple of segments in the second hour of today's program, The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. That's with Sigard. We'll also take a look at the life and legacy of Ray Baki, who has died at 83. He actually died earlier in February. The family asked that his obituary not be posted until later so that they could have a season to grieve. Well, the Wyoming Senate passed an amendment to defund UW's Gender and Women's Studies program, From the Republican Senate Education Committee chairman, State Senator Charles Scott, this is an extremely biased, ideologically driven program that I can't see any academic legitimacy to. I think we'll hear complaints about how we're interfering in the interests of the university, but I think what we're really doing is sending them a message that they need to clean up their act in terms of the quality of the instruction that's being given, end quote. Mark Davis weighs in saying, thank God, thing is, Uh, From gender studies to women's studies to black studies, these are actually worthy areas of intellectual interest if handled objectively and honestly. The problem is all of these disciplines are populated with cranks spreading societal poison, end quote. Well, a Seattle bakery has closed for the safety of employees due to crime and drug use as downtown Seattle evolves into a complete mess. Well, UPenn officials have ignored complaints about a man's nudity in the women's locker room because he's a male swimmer who is competing as a female. What would normally be clear harassment is allowed to continue to the detriment of young women who just want to compete. A mother of one of the uh, swimmers is speaking out, but anonymously. You can... uh, Learn more about what she has to say on her podcast, but she explains how the school intimidated and manipulated the girls to keep them silent. The girls knew it was wrong and unfair, but they were silenced before they could say a word. It's a long, powerful and um, troubling speech. These young women are being abused and the college is willing uh, to allow it to happen. In other news, Germany sees the light on energy. Shell and BP exit Russia and IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, fearmongers over climate change. Well, with Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, Germany's reliance on Russian oil and natural gas has exposed the nation's significant energy vulnerability and has served as a wake-up call to the impracticality of the goal of 100% renewable power source by 2040, or rather 2045. Germany's government is now actively engaged in an about-face by extending operations of its coal-fired power plants, as well as its three remaining nuclear power plants that were slated for shutting, um, shuttering by the end of this year. Speaking of seeing the light, oil companies Shell and BP announced that they will entirely exit operations in Russia, moves that could cost the company some $3 billion 
and $25 billion, respectively. BP stated there was only one decision we could make. The exit was the only viable one. Meanwhile, not everyone understands that uh, sound energy policy trumps vague climate worries. The U.N.'s International uh, Panel on Climate Change released its latest report, essentially concluding that catastrophic climate-related events may soon overwhelm humanity and the globe. I've heard that for decades. As U.N. Secretary General um, Antonio Guterres put it, with facts upon facts, this uh, report reveals how people and the planet are getting clobbered by climate change. Well, people are getting clobbered in places like Ukraine, and the culprit is not climate change, but power-hungry individuals. Fear-mongering over the uh, challenge does nothing to stop the climate from changing, but it does play into the hands of those lusting for greater power. Well, the Supreme Court of the United States has agreed to hear a case against EPA overreach. Speaking of using climate change as an excuse to impose greater government control over people's lives, the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday heard arguments raised against the administration's efforts to use the Environmental Protection Agency to enact Biden's green agenda. At issue for the Supreme Court was the question of the separations of power. Justice Samuel Alito observed the EPA is claiming authority to set industry policy and energy policy and balance such things as jobs, economic impact, the potentially catastrophic effects of climate change, as well as costs. In West Virginia versus EPA, the state solicitor general noted the EPA can regulate in ways that cost billions of dollars, affect thousands of businesses and are designed to address an issue with worldwide effect. This is major policymaking power under any definition. Well, furthermore, the lawyer representing the state's coal industry argued that the EPA wants to effectively dictate not only the technical details of how a coal plant operates, but also the big picture policy of how the nation generates its electricity, end quote. The Senate has blocked an anti-pro-life law on Monday. Republicans prevented the Senate from voting on a bill sponsored by Richard Blumenthal and Tammy Baldwin from Connecticut and Wisconsin, respectively, that would have essentially codified abortion rights into federal law via the Interstate Commerce Act. The uh, disingenuously named Women's Health Protection Act would have prevented states from passing abortion-related regulations. The bill was clearly aimed at several Republican-controlled states that have recently passed abortion-limiting legislation like Texas Heartbeat Bill. The uh, Senate bill failed to reach the 60 votes needed for cloture. The West Virginia's Joe Manchin sided with Republicans in imposing the legislation. Several Democrat lawmakers uh, lamented the bill's failure, while Republicans celebrated Senator Roger Weicker uh, declared, I am glad to stand alongside so many of my colleagues in opposition to this attack on the most vulnerable members of our society. We will continue to fight for life. Twelve Russian diplomats have been ordered to leave the U.S. for engaging in espionage and satellite images show a 40 mile Russian military convoy near Kiev. Russia is suspended, uh, rather suspected of using devastating cluster bombs and thermobaric rockets. And FIFA suspended Russia from the World Cup while UEFA throws teams out of European competition. The Ukrainian president has signed an EU membership application and Congressman Ted Deutsch won't uh, seek re-election. He is the 31st House Democrat to announce his retirement. California, Oregon, and Washington, along with New York, plan to drop school mask mandates very soon. Well, on this day in history, 1781, the Continental Congress declares the Articles of Confederation to be in force following ratification by Maryland. 1790, President George Washington signs a measure authorizing the first U.S. Census. 1893, inventor Nikola Tesla 
first publicly demonstrates radio during a meeting of the National Electric Light Association in St. Louis by transmitting electromagnetic energy without wires. 1954, four Puerto Rican nationalists opened fire from the Spectators Gallery of the U.S. House of Representatives, wounding five members of Congress. Four members of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party uh, waged the attack to bring attention to Puerto Rico's desire to be free from the U.S. Puerto Rico had become a U.S. territory with Commonwealth status in 1952. On this day in history, 1954, the United States detonates a dry fuel hydrogen bomb codenamed Castle Bravo at Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands. 1961, President John F. Kennedy signs an executive order establishing the Peace Corps. 1962, the first Kmart store opens in Garden City, Michigan. And 1966, Soviet space probe Venera 3 makes impact with the surface of Venus, becoming the first spacecraft to reach another planet. However, Venera is unable to transmit any data because its communications system fails. 1974, seven people, including former Nixon White House aides H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman, former Attorney General John Mitchell and former Assistant Attorney General Robert uh, Mardian, are indicted on charges of conspiring to obstruct justice in connection with the Watergate break-in. 2014, Russian troops take over Crimea as the parliament in Moscow gives President Vladimir Putin a green light to use the military to protect Russian interests in Ukraine. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, President Donald Trump announces the U.S. will impose steep tariffs on steel and aluminum imports, escalating trade tensions with China and other partners. We're going to take a break in just a few moments for news and traffic at the top of the hour. But I wanted to give you a preview of what's coming up. We'll be hearing from Cy Gart, whose book, The Work of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith, is certainly an encouraging odyssey of how he considered himself someone who was incapable of belief and through his work as a scientist became a man of faith. That's coming up in the uh, second hour. We'll also remember Ray Baki. He has uh, died at, at 83. He was uh, instrumental in drawing evangelical churches attention to the city and uh, subjects of integration and diversity within the body of Christ. He passed away earlier in February. His family asked that his obituary not be released until uh, later so that the family would have an opportunity to grieve, but we'll reflect back on his uh, role and contributions to the body of Christ. Also coming up in this second hour, we'll talk about uh, Russia's advance on Kiev. It's somewhat stalled, and that's surprising to many. The weather's also changing, and some suggest that might be an advantage for the Ukrainians who are putting up something of a of a defense. Uh, we'll also um, uh, talk about um, a bill that's been introduced to ban U.S. imports of Russian oil and the European Parliament voting to advance Ukraine's application for EU membership. Now, that is just the opposite of what Vladimir Putin hoped would happen when all of this happened. He, he hoped that it would fracture NATO and other alliances. But on the contrary, it seems to have brought them together and uh, given them a sense of purpose and recognition of the value of that alliance. We'll get into all of that in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back shortly, so stay with us. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. And once again, Cy Gart will be uh, coming up in this second hour as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, we'll hear from Cy Gart. He's the author of The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. We'll also remember Ray Bakke, who passed away early in February at 83. Well, a senior U.S. defense official said on Tuesday that the Russian military's advance on Kiev has stalled because of uh, logistical issues, while Ukraine President Zelensky accused Russia of war crimes after an apparent strike uh, in uh, Ukraine's second largest city. We generally sense that the Russian military movement in Kiev is stalled at this point, the official said in a briefing to reporters uh, that was on Tuesday. The official noted that a 40-mile-long convoy of Russian military vehicles seen in satellite imagery has not made meaningful progress toward the capital in uh, recent hours. Now, again, we're being told that the weather could be something of an impediment, but we can't really count on that uh, moving forward. Some Russian troops may be running out of food, while the U.S. is indications that several Russian units may have surrendered without a fight, according to the assessment. A significant number of Russian soldiers are very young men drafted into service, according to the official. Many of them weren't even aware that they were uh, going to be sent into a combat zone. However, the U.S. has assessed that Russia has now committed over 80 percent of troops mobilized on the Ukrainian border toward the war effort. Russia has also occupied the cities of Berdansk and Malitob, I'm not pronouncing that correctly, so forgive me, in southern Ukraine. With the Russian invasion in its fifth day, the Twitter account for Ukraine's parliament posted a picture of the Kiev TV tower after it was hit in an apparent missile strike. Ukrainian emergency services said five people were killed in that attack. Russian forces have just fired at the Kiev TV tower, the Post read. Meanwhile, Ukraine's president slammed an apparent Russian missile strike on Freedom Square in Kiev. Um, or Kharkiv. Today, Russian troops shelled Kharkiv using a rocket artillery, uh, President Zelensky said in a video posted on his Facebook page late on Monday. This is without a doubt a military crime, a peaceful city, peaceful resident, na- residential neighborhoods, not a single military object in sight. Well, Zelensky claimed the attack left dozens dead in a speech to the European Parliament later on Tuesday. This is the price of freedom, he said. This is terror against Ukraine. There were no military targets in the square, nor are there in those residential districts in Kharkiv, which come under rocket artillery fire. Well, Vladimir Putin's military has met stiffer than expected resistance from Ukrainian forces so far, but there are two other fronts. Uh, to this war that may well pose even more serious challenges, the economic front and the home front. First, the economic front, as global markets react to the invasion that's been almost universally condemned, China, still waiting on uh, on you. The Russian ruble took a hit, a huge hit yesterday, plunging some 30 percent to a record low in the wake of sanctions from Western countries, including measures to block some Russian banks from SWIFT, a key international payment system. And this is only the beginning, as the Wall Street Journal editorial board writes. New sanctions announced Monday by the U.S. Treasury prohibits most transactions with Russian central banks and sovereign wealth fund in tandem with similar measures imposed by other developed countries. This makes it all but impossible for Moscow to trade much of its $631 billion foreign exchange reserves to shore up the ruble. Unfortunately, measures, measures rather such as these tend to hit hardest those who can least afford it, in this case, the Russian people. That's not the target. And that's all the more reason to focus on Putin's oligarch friends, the ones who keep him in power. As the editors uh, point out, doing so would blunt the impact on 
of Kremlin propaganda, arguing these measures are anti-Russian rather than anti-Putin and also would disrupt the economic cronyism Mr. Putin uses to maintain his power. Well, that's what the U.S. and the West seem to be doing, having created a task force to track down and snatch up the Putin Crimea, uh, or rather crime family, uh, their ill-gotten gains. Indeed, his wealthy friends might come to reassess their support for the increasingly erratic ex-KGB officer, If this uh, task force is able to identify, hunt down and freeze the assets of sanctioned Russian companies and oligarchs, as a senior Biden official put it, we'll go after their uh, yachts, their luxury apartments, their money and their ability to send their kids to fancy colleges in the West. Uh, Well, this uh, process is continuing. Um, The National Review's Jim Garrity asks an excellent question, one with historical significance. He asks, just how much economic devastation do we want to inflict upon a country with roughly 4,500 nuclear warheads? A bitter and stinging defeat of Putin is essential. Otherwise, he'll try it again sometime. But he also writes, one painful lesson of World War I was that if victorious nations humiliate the defeated nations, the defeated people may simmer in resentment and suppressed rage and then elect some demagogue who creates creates even bigger problems. If you know history, you know what he's referring to. Then there's the uh, Russian people themselves who seem to see what an atrocity is being committed by their head of state or are completely unaware of it or only subject to information they're allowed to receive. As the Washington Examiner reported, for the fourth day in a row, crowds took to the streets of more than 40 of Russia's biggest cities and faced police in riot gear as they protested the invasion of neighboring Ukraine. Demonstrations were reported in Moscow, Putin's hometown of St. Petersburg, and as far north as Siberia. The protests came despite a social media blackout and threats from the government to imprison traitors who had or support Ukraine. Well, as of last Thursday... 1,675 people were detained during protests, including at least 919 in Moscow. By Sunday, those numbers had swollen to 2,800. When everyone's a traitor, then no one's a traitor. And if Russian uh, people continue to express their dissent, who knows what will happen. There are also acts of individual bravery coming out of Russia. Tennis player Andrei Rublev Uh, For example, bravely made his opinion known by writing no war, please, on the camera after his tennis match in Dubai. At some considerable risk, I would imagine. Finally, the Russian people will soon hear stories from their own sons as they filter back home to Russia. Stories like this one from a Russian soldier who texted his mom shortly before his death. Mama, I'm in Ukraine. There is a real war raging here. I'm afraid we are bombing all of the cities, even targeting civilians. Vladimir Putin is being squeezed from all sides, and rightly so. Let's hope it squeezes in just the right way that puts an end to hostilities. We'll have to see. Meanwhile, Kansas Republican Senator Roger Marshall introduced legislation today that calls on the White House to ban all Russian oil imports into the U.S. The bill, which would specifically block the importation of petroleum and petroleum products from Russia, has been backed by Energy Committee GOP leader Senator John Barrasso, along with at least seven other Republicans in the upper chamber. First and foremost, Marshall told uh, uh, the media, President Biden needs to restart America's energy production and quit funding Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine by continuing to purchase crude oil from Russia. Marshall's bill comes one day after Canada blocked imports of crude oil in protest to Russia's deadly invasion of Ukraine. 
The European Parliament voted Tuesday to advance Ukraine's application for membership in the European Union after Ukraine President uh, Zelensky made an emergency appeal to the body amid Russia's ongoing invasion. An overwhelming majority of European Parliament representatives voted for accepting Ukraine with 637 in favor, 13 against, 26 choosing to abstain. However, Ukraine's application is not being fast-tracked. Countries are generally required to go through a number of steps in order to obtain membership, and the process can last years. But the fact that they have um, agreed to advance Ukraine's application uh, speaks volumes to Vladimir Putin, one would imagine. Well, for decades, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization stood as an alliance of Western European free nations with the United States. The purpose of NATO was to win the Cold War against the Soviet Union and protect the security of member states. Now that Vladimir Putin has launched an invasion to realize his goal of restoring the glory of the USSR, how does NATO alliance stand? Well, better than it did in 2017, but still with a lot of ground to make up. But given circumstances as we see them now, It appears that they're at least moving in that direction. Well, coming up, we're going to hear from Cy Gart. He is the author of The Work of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. We'll also remember the life and legacy of Ray Bakke. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Here's the question. How does one go from an avowed atheist to a person of faith? Well, in his new release, The Works of His Hands, biochemist and author Cy Gard, he takes readers on a personal journey from being raised in a militant atheist family to that of a fully committed follower of Jesus, a Christian. And while he had no intention to believe in God, as a student and early in his career, the science that he loved led him to question his worldview. In fact, he says, and I'm quoting, my scientific knowledge had made me doubt my atheistic upbringing and I was ready and waiting, but not yet a believer. Then one day while I was driving on the Pennsylvania turnpike, the Holy Spirit took hold of me. I pulled over, wept, and thanked the Lord for his mercy. Well, the book is titled The Work of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. And my guest, Dr. Cy Garth, is a biochemist and has been a professor at New York University, University of Pittsburgh, and Rutgers University. He has authored over 200 scientific publications and four previous books and has served as division director at the National Institutes of Health. He is also editor-in-chief of God and Nature Magazine and Vice President of the Washington, D.C. Chapter of the American Scientific Affiliation. He is a lay leader at the United Methodist Church, and he joins us today to talk about his book, The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, you um, uh, write in your book that um, your own salvation came through the understanding that the natural world and its description by science is a strong witness to God's existence and majesty. Can you explain a little of what you mean by that, given the fact that you were a scientist for much longer um, before you came to recognize God's hand uh, at work, as the, the title of your book suggests? Yes. Well, I, I was I actually still am a scientist. I've been a scientist uh, my whole adult life. But I was also an atheist, and as you mentioned in your introduction, I was brought up in a very militant atheist family uh, and taught that not only should we not believe in God, but that the idea of God is impossible and 
religion, in particular Christianity, are evil and, you know, should be avoided. So that was my, orig- my original upbringing, and it was a long journey to get from there to where I am today. Uh, and as, as also was in the introduction, uh, the first part of that journey involved the science I was learning, which was uh, going against the strong materialist views of how the world is that I had been taught as, as a youth, and uh, was opening up a lot of questions in my mind about that kind of atheist dogma that I was learning. And when I began probing into those questions, I found myself rejecting that kind of strong atheism and ended up more or less as an agnostic. I really wasn't sure what to believe. You describe your journey as long and winding and say that you write the, you wrote the book more as a guide to the perplexed for people of faith or uh, open-minded atheists who wish to embrace the modern world of science and technology and enjoy the intellectual and emotional beauty of science without giving up any part of their equally beautiful and soul-enriching faith in God. Talk a bit about who you want to reach and, and your approach in sharing not only your journey, but uh, what you learned along the way. Yeah, I I had a very specific audience in mind when I wrote this book, and that is uh, that audience would be anyone who, especially Christians, who are uh, wondering about their faith and who have been told by the media and by the very strident voices of new atheism that you have to choose between God and science. You have to choose between your faith. You might have been brought up in a in a in a very devout Christian household, and then you go to college and you learn uh, about biology and physics and evolution, and you 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 know get the idea either from professors or from pastors or both that you can't have both. You have to choose one or the other because science and Christianity are in conflict. And the whole goal of of my work, and I'm not alone. There are many of us mm-hmm. trying the same thing, is to show that that is a myth, that the conflict between science and Christian faith is, is not real. It's, uh, it's made up, and it is, it's easily destroyed as soon as you actually know enough about science and enough about the truth of Christianity. You divide the book into two parts. In the, in the first part, you focus a lot on, on, on your experience, your quest for knowledge that brought you to question your materialist assumptions and some of the larger questions that I think are, are familiar to many of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I start out talking about uh, a little bit about physics. I, I will say there's a lot of science at the beginning of the book, but it's not, it's, it's very accessible mm-hmm. to non-scientists. So, uh, don't readers should not be worried about that. Uh, but I do talk about some of the very strange results of modern physics, which are, you know are not the kinds of things we learn in high school about inclined planes and and pulleys and things, but very complex stuff about atoms and and electrons and particles. And when you get into that level, it turns out that physics is not terribly rational. There are all kinds of seemingly magical things that go on in when you're talking about how, you know, electrons can be both particles and waves at the same time and all kinds of other things that just don't make a lot of sense in our minds, but they're true. And when I learned about that, and that's, as I said, that's the first chapter there. uh, When I learned about that, I started wondering, 
about the whole claim that Christianity uh, or religion in general must be false because it, it's irrational. And then I realized, well, wait a minute, uh, so is science. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to our minds. It makes sense mathematically, but that's about it. So uh, that kind of destroyed my first argument against the idea of religion. And after that, I talk about what I was learning in biology and biochemistry, which is my own field. And the incredible beauty and complexity of, of even simple cells is just staggering especially when you learn the details. And I just found it hard to just accept the idea that this was all accidental. This is all just, you know, from natural uh, events that occurred by chance. And I started thinking, well, I don't know, there must be something else going on. I didn't know what it was. I still didn't believe in God. I was, I've also always been fascinated by human beings, by the, the incredible, uh, power of the human brain, the creativity, imagination, art, music, humor, uh, science itself, all of this is, is brand new in the universe, and it only you only find it in human beings. And I, I was asking myself, what, what, what is it? You know, what, what caused that? How do human beings get to be the way they are? And I didn't have a good answer for that. Mm -hmm. So these, these are some of the questions that were, you know, poking holes in my original uh, uh, wall of belief in, in strong atheism, and I was rapidly losing that. And, um, and then I began realizing that science has a lot of limits. There's a lot of things that science does not answer. And all scientists know this. The whole concept of scientism, which is the philosophical view that all questions can be answered by science, is not something that most scientists share because scientists know from their own experience that there's a whole range of questions, even questions about the natural world, that science is, is not able to answer. So at that point, uh, I, I guess you could say that, that that is the first part of the book and the first part of my journey. And what it left me with was a sense that uh, I really didn't know what was going on, and uh, I was no longer hostile to the idea of God, the idea of religion. I still had a long way to go, and the way I developed that part of my story was uh, I was be I became open to people I knew who were Christians. Uh, one of them brought me to a church for the first time in my life. I was in my late 40s when that happened. And I was expecting a horrible thing. You know, I, I didn't know what to expect in a church. I'd heard all these horrible stories about, <laughs> you know, fire and damnation and brimstone and all kinds of things. And I, I was, I walked in, I was absolutely terrified. I don't think I've ever been that frightened, you know, walking into a church. <laughs> and, and the pastor started speaking about love. And that was it. And, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, people shook my hand. Uh, they wished me peace. And it was very pleasant. And I was very surprised and realized, well, I guess I really have been lied to. Uh, you know, it was, it was not a horrible experience at all. It was actually quite pleasant. And I will say that since I became a Christian, I've been in many churches, many denominations, and I have never had anything other than a wonderful experience. So, um, 
you know, I, I wasn't just lucky, I think, <laughs> <laughs> that any any church you can walk into, especially if you're a diehard atheist, you're going to be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a sure. quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Cy Gart. His book is titled The Works of His Hands. We'll take a break and be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with my guest, uh, Dr. Cy Garth. He is the author of The Works of His Hands. And in the book, he is, I should mention, a biochemist, and he shares what he learned and still learning during his uh, career as a scientist in search of purpose and meaning. He discovered Christianity, to uh, paraphrase C.S. Lewis, as the light by which everything else may be seen. His insights, offered in narrative and creative storytelling, provide a roadmap for reconciling science and faith, both for spiritual seekers and uh, peeking over the uh, the fence of the yard of agnosticism and those who are sitting on the pews looking outward. Uh, just before the break, we were talking about the first half of the book. In the second um, half of the book, you really um, uh, cover many of the issues and questions that are presented against God in the academic and scientific uh, settings and explain the foundations that um, are false on which they rest. Can you talk a bit about the second half of the book and how it fits with uh, your journey and others who might be seeking? Sure. Um, well, what happened was I, I I wasn't expecting to become a Christian at all, uh, even after I had kind of rejected my materialism and my uh, uh, you know my original atheism. I, I was kind of floating around looking at various things, you know, New Age stuff and spirituality in general, but uh, what happened was, and this is the last, this is covered in the last chapter of the first part, uh, I, first of all, I had a couple of dreams uh, in which Jesus Christ appeared to me, and I didn't know it was Jesus, it was a man, but those dreams were very powerful, and uh, they led me to wonder if perhaps uh, that was the answer, (laughs) you know, Christianity. Um, I decided to read the Gospels, and when I did that, I had never, of course, cracked the Bible before, but at this point, I went straight to Matthew, and I read it, and it it seemed convincing to me. I mean, I didn't necessarily believe it, but it certainly didn't seem like a fairy story. It didn't seem like anyone had made that up. And then I read the Acts of the Apostles, and that read to me like actual history. It didn't, again, it didn't sound like this was some kind of a conspiracy to, you know, to fool the masses into <laughs> believing in, in, in religion. It, it, it sounded very real. And the story of Paul, of course, was, was very moving to me. Um, and so I was about, I was really thinking about this as a possibility, but I couldn't quite get over that threshold. I, I, my training had been too intense and too long. And uh, I was actually dragged over the threshold, as as you mentioned in the introduction, while I was driving one day uh, by the Holy Spirit, who who came to me, and uh, it's described in detail in the book, but Mm -hmm. basically I found myself preaching a sermon to myself, and that sermon did not come from me. (laughs) I didn't even know some of the concepts that were in it, but when I was done, it it was clear to me that that Christ is real, the Holy Spirit is real, and I became a Christian right there at that time. 
But now we'll get to your question, because that caused a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I was going to believe in Jesus Christ as a, as a fully committed scientist, and, and I, I didn't know any Christians, I, I certainly didn't know any Christians in science, and I didn't know what to do, and I had a lot of questions I had to deal with, like, you know, what about the Bible? Is the Bible true? Doesn't the Bible have contradictions? And doesn't the Bible say things that are not scientific? I had to understand the, you know, what about evil? What about all of these questions that, you know, I had always brought up myself when arguing with people who were religious and were trying to convert me. And, you know, I, I had to answer those questions uh, as well to myself. And I did, and I found it surprisingly easy to do. And when I thought about it, I mean, one of the things that people often bring up is, why doesn't God give me a sign? And sometimes when I tell people about the dreams and the experience driving that I had, they say, well, nothing like that has ever happened to me. Why doesn't God come to me and give me a sign? And the answer to that is that I remember once I had come to Christ, that God had given me many signs in the past, all kinds of things, uh, that had been pointing to belief in him. And I had simply ignored them. And in one case, I actually was felt emotionally moved by something that I saw and that seemed very much in tune with the idea of, of God. But I just rejected it and I just chalked it down to, you know, some emotional uh, delusion or something that was affecting me. And I rejected that. I wasn't listening. I wasn't open. And it wasn't until, you know, my study of science opened me up that I was able to hear these calls to Jesus. And and once I could hear them, I eventually was able to respond. So that was one question that I was able to deal with. In terms of the Bible, luckily, I I came across many Christians uh, who are scientists uh, I read a book called The Language of God by Dr. Francis Collins, who's now the uh, director of the NIH, uh, a famous geneticist, and who is an evangelical Christian, and who actually I've come to know, and, and he's an amazing man. And his book, if nothing else, it showed me that I was not the only one. <laughs> I thought I was the only scientist who would ever believe in God. And then I, I discovered a whole universe of people, uh, Mm -hmm. both living and in the past, I found out that almost all the scientists in history were Christian up until the last few decades, actually. That includes Pasteur, my heroes, uh, you know, Alexander Fleming, and uh, obviously uh, the well-known ones like uh, Copernicus and and, uh, Maxwell and Faraday and Robert Boyle. These are all giants of of early Mm -hmm. science, and they were all not just Christians, they were devout Christians, and they wrote about Christianity. So all of this had been hidden from me, and I, when I learned it, I, 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 also, I also found out there were many Nobel Prize winners who were Christians, and I actually had met one of them, at least. I may have met two, I don't remember, but one I met. And um, the whole idea that, that no scientist can be a Christian, which is what I thought. I honestly thought that. I thought it was too contradictory. It's just nonsense, and uh, it's 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 what I call a big lie. It, it it's well believed by many many people, especially younger people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's taught on some university campuses. Uh, unfortunately, I believe there are some professors. I've known a couple who 
will stress that. If they're teaching biology and evolution, they'll say, well, you know, obviously this is not the Bible. You can't believe in, uh, in God if you're going to accept modern biology. And that's simply a false statement. It's completely untrue. I just love the fact that you're telling your story. And each uh, chapter, I should mention in the book, includes discussion questions. Uh, you have a comprehensive appendix where readers can find more extensive information. It's written for anybody who's ever been told that the realities of science call for the rejection of God, as you've just described. And it really is uh, an approachable book, as you mentioned uh, at the start of our conversation, that I would highly recommend. I wish we had more time, but we are out of time. I want to thank you for the book and for taking your valuable time to talk with us here today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Really appreciate it. Again, the book is titled The Works of His Hands. Dr. Seigart is the author and is currently available in bookstores. In fact, who's the the publisher here? Kregel is the the publisher. A great read, and you should find some encouragement, those of you who have uh, family members and friends who seem like they're just outside of the, the possibility of the gospel reaching them. Be encouraged. Again, The Works of His Hands. Dr. Seigart, stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Want to give you a quick heads up, a couple of things that we're working on for tomorrow's program. We're going to talk with Danny Harlow. He is one of the hosts of the Harlow Wealth Retirement Hour, heard here on KPDQ. We're going to talk about the uncertainty that we're facing and how that's going to impact retirement efforts. In fact, I heard a commentator just the other day say, uh, you know, this, whatever had just happened, this was just a couple of days ago, that just, uh, you know, your 401k just took a big hit. What does that mean and what can we expect moving forward? What are the economic implications of much of what we're witnessing? And we're also going to speak with a representative from Alliance Defending Freedom regarding a Christian web designer, Lori Smith, uh, who might be forced to design uh, wedding websites for uh, couples with whom she disagrees. We'll bring you all the Important details on that. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear that case. It may seem like they're hearing the same case over and over again. You just change the faces and a few of the details. Uh, but this is a significant case. We'll explain why when they join me on the program here tomorrow. Well, Ray Bakke died. He believed Christians were called to cities. He was an urban missiologist, and he urged evangelicals to cross racial and cultural lines for the sake of the gospel. Now, he believed that Jesus loved the little children, all the children of the world, and he thought evangelicals did, too. So he was, and I'm quoting from Christianity Today, he was surprised when so many fled from racial diversity when their children's schools were integrated. It was the biggest shock of my life, he told Christianity Today back in 2021. The whole Moody Trinity uh, Wheatland, uh, Wheaton establishment, all of them singing red and yellow, black and white, But when those kids showed up at their kids' schools, they panicked and they fled. Well, he went the opposite direction. He moved his family into Chicago in 1965, and that's significant, 1965. He stayed through white flight, racial unrest, riots, bombs, fires, and gangs. He adopted a black son, became a leading proponent of urban missiology, arguing that the Great Commission called Christians into American cities. Well, he was a critic of suburban Christianity and a bold voice opposing church growth strategies that embraced and encouraged de facto racial segregation. He taught us um, urban missiology in ways few of us were prepared to see it in the 80s. That's a quote from David Fitch. He's the chair of evangelical theology at Northern Seminary. 
He gave us a vision for how God works in the teeming diversities of urban centers. He had a giant presence wherever he spent time with pastors and students. He died February 4th at the age of 83. His family had requested that uh, information be held um, about his obituary until the 28th of February to give the family time to grieve. Now, as a black kid growing up in Portland, Oregon, it's surprising to me to learn the debate that was going on within the church. It seems so obvious to me what the scriptures taught, the debate going on within the church with regard to diversity. Um, I can I could tell you stories of my own experience where there were glimpses of that. But that said, to know that the uh, the head of theological organizations and denominations were wrestling with integration is disheartening, discouraging. But I'm still hopeful because I'm a follower of Christ and I know the Holy Spirit is at work in his people. Well, the author of The Urban Christian and a Theology as Big as the City was raised to about as far from city lights as one could get. His parents, Toloff and Ruth Bakke, they settled in Saxon, Washington, about 90 miles north of Seattle, in a valley between the Cascade Mountains and Lake Whatcom, uh, where a community of immigrant loggers and farmers raised children and cows. Toloff and Ruth, his parents, both came from Norwegian families, but spoke in different dialects, and they couldn't understand each other. So the first language in their home was English. Toloff, the father, had once hoped to go to Bible school, but the dream was interrupted by the Great Depression. He had a dairy farm, drove a truck, was an active member of a local Lutheran church with a deep commitment to personal faith, prayer, and Bible reading. Ray Bakke was born in May of 1938, the oldest of four. He was taught Sunday school by a busted-up Sweden Swedish logger, that's how he describes the Bible teacher, who believed Christians should love God, follow Jesus, and serve the world. Well, a high school history teacher and football coach encouraged him to go study at Moody Bible Institute and get a little Bible under your belt. He left Washington on a bus at age 18 with a box of chicken and sandwiches his mother had packed. Bucky said in an interview two months before his death, I didn't even know where Moody was. When we came down Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, I was in awe of everything I saw. I was captured by Moody. While studying to be a pastor from 1956 to 59, he was exposed to, for the first time, to racial divisions in America. One of the people he learned from was uh, Corrine Jantz, a piano major and pastor's daughter from Missouri. Jantz was the pianist for the Moody Choir, and her roommate, the choir's best soloist, Anita Bingham, was a black woman. When the choir traveled, school officials called ahead to warn churches that the choir was integrated. Bakke was uh, startled to learn that some Christians would refuse to let black students into their homes. Again, this breaks my heart, but this is history. Bakke married Jans in 1960, and the young couple moved to Seattle, where Bakke, he pastored at a Swedish Baptist church and continued his education at Seattle Pacific University. As a young pastor, he said he learned he also had to be a part-time sociologist to minister, minister rather to his congregation. He had to understand the social pressures impacting their faith. When a local Boeing plant lost a government contract, for example, and laid off large numbers of employees, the effect was felt at the Swedish Baptist Church. Men just stopped coming. He decided he needed more education, and the family suffered a personal tragedy when a daughter died at birth. They buried her and left Seattle. The family... Uh, Ray, Corrine, the sons, Woody and Brian, they moved back to Chicago in 1965. Well, Bucky enrolled in Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He pastored a church in Edgewater uh, neighborhood in Chicago. 
uh, where about 60,000 people lived in a 1.25 square mile area, including immigrants from about 25 percent of the nations of the world. He recognized his cultural context was in some important ways similar to the urban context of Christians in the Roman Empire. He wrote to churches in diverse metro, uh, uh, metropolises. Augustine wrote about the Trinity while ministering to Christians in the port city of Hippo. And yet, in an evangelism class at Trinity, he learned there was no major scholarship on urban evangelism and that some even argue that Christianity couldn't thrive in cities because the Bible was a rural book for rural people. As an evangelical, though, Bakke felt called to love God, follow Jesus, and serve the world. And the world's people were increasingly urban. We can all be timid Christians when faced with modern urban conditions, he later wrote, but it is only by living in a city with a theological vision of the city that we can attempt to reach the city's people. When Baki graduated from uh, Trinity, he entered the doctoral program at McCormick Theological Seminary, writing his dissertation on urban pastoral work in the Roman Empire and laying the foundation for a modern urban missiology. As a doctoral student, he confounded uh, the seminary consortium, or rather co-founded, it's a very different word, co-founded the Seminary Consortium for Urban Pastoral Education, which is now a school at um, Christian Theological Seminary. When he graduated, he took a position as professor of ministry at Northern Seminary and joined the Luzon uh, Committee for World Evangelism as the senior associate for large cities. His work ran against popular trends in the study of evangelism, though. Many evangelicals in the 80s and 90s embraced a church growth strategy based on the homogenous unit principle that said more people will convert to Christianity if they don't have to cross racial, linguistic, or class barriers. Maki personally quarreled with Fuller Professor Peter Wagner about church growth, and he describes that encounter, which was... um, a bit hands-on. Well, at the same time, integration wasn't an abstract idea for Baki. His sons were enrolled in public school, and Woody, his eldest, frequently brought home friends who didn't have enough to eat at to the Baki house. One of them, a boy named Brian Davis, stayed for weeks and then months until the Baki family finally asked if he wanted to be a permanent part of the family. He was adopted. In 2001, he confounded, <laughs> here we go again, we co-founded uh, Baki Graduate University. The school focused on teaching pastors to apply theology to trends in urban migration and the growth of global cities. Two-week intense courses are held in six continents, and each student had to cross an ocean at least once as part of the program. He continued to be frustrated, though, that so many white evangelicals didn't seem to believe the Sunday school song about Christ's love for racial diversity. I watched the evangelical movement panic and turn inwards, he said a few months before his death. We've um, become fearful as the country that became fearful, and politicians have played on that fear. Too many white evangelicals have forgotten who we are. We are the people who believe in crossing oceans and jungles and talking to people in their own languages. Now we're moving into all-white neighborhoods and hoping the globalization stuff will go away. He said he hoped Christians would reread Psalm 107 when he died and remember that God is on a mission in the motion of people around the globe. He was predeceased by his son, Brian Davis, in 2018, and wife, Corrine Jantz Bakke, in 2021. He is survived by his sons, Woody and Brian. Well, it is a, uh, a loss to the Christian community. I had hoped to have time to read Psalm 107. I don't, but I would encourage you to take a look if you'd like to uh, consider what the scriptures say about the very subject that was his heartbeat. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.